the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Law Offices of Selwyn Whitehead is a debt relief agency under federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking debt relief under the United States Bankruptcy Code. This is Selwyn's Law. Every week at this time, we get to hear from Selwyn Whitehead. She's not just an attorney at law. Selwyn knows her stuff and doesn't shy away from the truth, even when it's ugly. Her Bay Area practice focuses on helping her clients to manage their wealth through estate and tax planning, to managing their debt through reconstruction or bankruptcy. And now, it's time for Selwyn's Law. Good day, and welcome again to Selwyn's Law. My name is Selwyn Whitehead. I'm a California Bar-admitted attorney and also a bankruptcy law certified specialist who's been certified by the State Bar of California's Board of Legal Specialization. And as I've shared with you before, in addition to having my JD in law, I also hold a couple of master's degrees of law, including a master of the laws of taxation law and a master of the laws of intellectual property laws. And I obtained both of these degrees from my favorite alma mater, Golden Gate University School of Law, which is located in beautiful downtown San Francisco. And therefore, because of my training, my experience, my interests, I primarily practice bankruptcy law, debt wealth management, estates and trusts, real estate, and taxation law. And I'm also proud to say that as part of my practice, I am sometimes able uh, to have the opportunity to vindicate the rights of seniors who find themselves victims of one or more of the various forms of financial elder abuse that's rampant in our um, society today because so many of us are baby boomers and as we reach retirement age, uh, this is like the first generation that has substantial uh, real estate and other kinds of wealth. And there's all kinds of people out there in the universe that's trying to separate us from what we have worked so hard for. And so when I have the opportunity to help someone, I'm always happy to at least try. And I got to share with you, and I've, I've shared this with you before, unfortunately, a lot of these individuals who try to separate seniors from their, their wealth uh, that's been accumulated are members of their own family, and that is truly a shame. But as always, I have to tell you that I'm pleased to once again to be able to come to you uh, via the beautiful KFAX Studios, which is also located in the beautiful San Francisco Bay Area, to discuss some of the financial and legal issues confronting families and business owners here in our great country. Uh, and as I've shared with you before, the American family and the American small business owner, including farmers and retailers, they are the backbone of our society. However, once again, I must ask you to please note that this show does not provide any legal advice, nor am I developing an attorney-client relationship with anyone within the sound of my voice. Instead, this show strives strictly to serve as an educational forum 
for the exchange of information that might be helpful to you as you begin your search for more detailed information that's tailored to your specific set of facts and circumstances and hopefully provide you with an outline of some of the issues that may help you seek out and find qualified professional help to help you with your legal issues or your financial issues, especially if they're intertwined. And I say that to say this, which I'm known for saying, you really do need qualified professional help if you have a legal issue, especially one dealing with your finances. Because i got to tell you, everybody else in the courtroom is either going to be a lawyer themselves or they're going to be represented by a lawyer. And although in federal court, you can go in and rep- represent yourself if you're an individual, not if you're an entity. But, you know, you, you at least need to consult with somebody to help you because the other side are going to play nice. They're going to smile on your face, but they're going to reach real deep in your pocket and get, you know, what it is that you're trying to preserve. And so, Again, it's like going to a gunfight with a butter knife. You're going to be the only one who's going to be impotent as opposed to important. And you're going to find that your uh, righteous claim or your righteous defense is likely going to see the promised land way before you do. So as you can see, this show is about telling you what you need to do and giving you an overview of the legal issues in a non-threatening way, especially when we're considering how we can protect your families or your small businesses, financial health, wealth, and money-related well-being, as far as I understand it. And with that said, we're going to continue our discussion of entrepreneurship by looking at the flip side, that is to say the bankruptcy side. And when we were last together, I said we were going to talk about creditor issues But, you know, I've heard from a couple of folks out there in radio land, and um, uh, some of you wanted me to give you just a basic overview of the history of bankruptcy. And so I think that um, we'll put a pause and come back to creditor issues in bankruptcy, but it's good to bring us all up to speed and have some kind of leveling as to what is this bankruptcy and where did it come from and why is it here? Well, if you're listening to me, uh, you're listening to Selwyn's Law on KFAX, um, you're likely to be a person of faith. And um, we all should know that bankruptcy actually comes from the tradition of faith. And so I was, was lucky enough for someone to send me an article that they clipped from uh, an online presence known as um, Bankruptcy data.com. And it's this particular article, uh, there was no attribution, so I don't know who wrote it. But again, it came from an organization known as bankruptcydata.com. And uh, their tagline is they do um, research and they're experts in bankruptcy research. I've never used them, but I did read this article and I find it very compelling. So I'm going to share it with you. Here we go. Tracing the concept of debt forgiveness all the way back to the Old Testament, we see Moses referencing something known as Jubilee or Holy Year, which is to take place once every 50 years. During that year, it was decreed that all debts would be eliminated 
and those Israelites that sold themselves into slavery would be freed. In addition, the Jubilee year also called for all the land that had been sold to revert back to its original owners. And the reference is Leviticus 25, 10 through 13, and it asserts, Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each one of you is to to return to his family, property, and each to his own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the unintended vines. For it is jubilee, and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. In this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to his own property. In Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 2 states, increases the frequency in which the debt forgiveness period are, are seen. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it's to be done. Every creditor shall cancel the loan he has made to his fellow Israelite. He shall not require payment from his fellow Israelite or brother because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. Then moving to ancient Greece, the notion of debt forgiveness was unknown. If a man owed a debt, that he was able to pay. His entire family, including any servants that he may own, became debt slaves. Some regions did protect such slaves from bodily harm and further limited the debt slavery period to a maximum of five years. Such mercies applied only to the family of the debtor, however, not to his servants, for whom treatment was much harsher. Harsher. The most widely accepted theory on the original origination of the word bankruptcy comes from a mixing of ancient Latin words, bancus, bench or table, and ruptus, broken. When a banker who originally conducted his public marketplace transaction on a bench was unable to continue lending and meet obligations, the bench was broken. Uh, in a symbol to show the failure and inability to negotiate. As a result of the frequency of this practice in medieval Italy, the current term bankruptcy is commonly believed to spring specifically from the translation of bancorato, Italian for broken bank. Others have speculated that the word originally came from the French expression bancarota, table trace. This phrase relates to the metaphorical practice of only a sign left at the site of the bankruptcy banker's table once there was no more uh, opportunity for the banker to work. This practice involved those who fled quickly, escaping with the money that had been entrusted to them. So they were scaff laws. In England, the first official laws concerning bankruptcy were passed in 1542 under Henry VIII, 
At that time, a bankrupt individual was considered a criminal and as such subject to criminal punishment ranging from incarceration in the debtor's prison all the way to the extreme sentence of death. In the 16th century, Spanish uh, King Philip II declared four separate states in Spain to be bankrupt. In fact, Spain was the first sovereign nation to declare bankruptcy. In early 18th century, saw a system of forward-thinking, positive reinforcement with the introduction of the statute number four of Anne, chapter 17. This statute provided that unpayable debts would be discharged in reward for the debtor to agree to pay what he could. So that's a good foundation at the beginning of bankruptcy. When we come back, I'll share a little bit more with you. But first, we're going to take a short break. Now back to Selwyn's Law. Once again, your host, Selwyn Whitehead. Welcome back to Selwyn's Law. As we continue our discussion on the history of bankruptcy, using the new generation research expert in bankruptcy uh, snippet uh, history that someone sent to me, and um, I'm, we attribute it to the website bankruptcydata.com. So we earlier, before the break, we went on a tour of, of the promised land, and we went across uh, Europe and talked about the foundation of bankruptcy. Now let's hone in on the United States. In the United States, early federal bankruptcy laws were temporary responses to bad economic conditions in the country. The first official bankruptcy law was enacted in 1800 in response to land speculation that some of very famous people involved in the foundation of our country was involved in. However, that law, that first law, was repealed in 1803 after the debt situation went away. Similarly, in 1841, in response to the panic of 1837, a second bankruptcy law was passed. This law was quickly repealed in 1843. The economic upheavals of the Civil War caused the Congress to pass another bankruptcy law in 1867, and that law was repealed in 1878. All of these laws contained some allowance for discharge of unpaid debts. The first two laws, those of 1800 and 1841, allowed only a minimal discharge of debts, while the law in 1867 was the first to include protections for corporate entities. Before the 20th century, rules and practices concerning bankruptcy generally favored the creditor and were harsher towards the bankrupt. Now we call a bankrupt a debtor because a bankrupt, that doesn't sound too kind. But back in the days, if you weren't able to pay your bills, you were considered to be a bankrupt and you were so noticed in, in public. The focus on recovering the investment of the creditor and unlike mostly now, almost all bankruptcies at that time were involuntary, meaning your creditors put you into bankruptcy to have the court supervise how they were going to tear you limb from limb financially. The practice of involuntary filing does contain, it continues to exist now. Now, 
your creditors, if you are a other than a human being, if you're an entity, you can be put into bankruptcy if a certain percentage of your creditors so so file. But as I've shared with you before, there are some really harsh penalties for putting someone into bankruptcy who didn't belong there, who doesn't belong there. Okay? Modern bankruptcy laws and practices in the United States emphasize rehabilitating, that is to say reorganizing the debtor in distress with limited emphasis on punishing the debtor unless the debtor is engaged in something that's untoward. The term, and you should keep this in mind, I'm stepping out of the article and and giving you these facts, bankruptcy is for the honest but unfortunate debtor who finds him or herself in a situation where she is or he is not able to pay his or her debts as they come due. And getting back into the article, the Bankruptcy Act of 1898 was the first to give companies in distress an option of being protected from their creditors. So before that, you were involuntarily put into bankruptcy so your creditors could go at you. But then the modern bankruptcy practice says, you know, even um, corporations need to be protected and figure out how they can reorganize or liquidate in a a manner that's uh, professional and uh, will do the most good for the creditor class and the debtor. Back into the article. The Bankruptcy Act of 1898, again, was the first to give companies in distress an option of being protected from their creditors. A company could be put in an equity receivership, a provision made more formal and extensive in the United States during the 1930s. The economic upheaval of the Great Depression yielded additional bankruptcy legislation, in particular the Bankruptcy Act of 1933 and the Bankruptcy Act of 1934. In a 1934 Supreme Court decision, the court reveals the primary goal of bankruptcy law is to offer debtors a fresh start from their financial burdens. In a case called Local Loan versus Hunt, the Supreme Court asserts it gives, again, the honest but unfortunate debtor a new opportunity in life and a clear feel for his or her future effort unhampered by the present and discouragement, the the pressure and discouragement of preexisting debts. I'm going to say that again. It gives the honest but unfortunate debtor a new opportunity in life and a clear feel for future effort unhampered by the pressure and discouragement of preexisting debt. This kind of sounds like the purpose of the Jubilee. It sounds like our government believes that an honest but unfortunate debtor who gets him or herself into financial distress, if they're honest, they should be able to plot a course in the future that's unhampered by the pressure and the discouragement of preexisting debt. This legislation culminated in the Chandler Act of 1938, which included substantial provisions for reorganization of businesses. Also in 1938, Congress enacted Section 60E of the Bankruptcy Act and created a single and separate fund concept intended to 
minimize losses to consumers by giving them priority over the claims of general creditors. Okay, so consumers come first on the priority in the 1938 Act, and then the claims of general creditors took second place. The securities interest saw significant turbulence in 1969 and 1970, leading to voluntary liquidations, mergers, receiverships, and bankruptcies of a substantial number of brokerage houses. In reaction to this situation, Congress enacted the Securities Investors Protection Act of 1970 in an attempt to quell the filings, restore investor confidence, and upgrade the financial responsibility requirements for registered brokers and dealers. During the period from World War II through the 1970, bankruptcy was not a major topic in the news, with the exception of railroads. There were not many notable business failures in the United States during that time period. In the 1970s, there were only two major corporate bankruptcies. There was the Penn Central Transportation Corporation in 1970 and W.T. Grant Company in 1975. The Bankruptcy Reform Act of 1978 took effect on October 1, 1979. This act, which continues to serve as the uniform federal law that governs all bankruptcy cases today, substantially revamped the bankruptcy practices A strong business reorganization chapter was created. It was called Chapter 11. This replaced the old Chapter 10 and Chapter 11 and Chapter 12 that had been created in 1898, the Chandra Act, as I talked about earlier. Similarly, the most powerful personal bankruptcy, Chapter 13, replaced the old Chapter 13 in Roman numerals. In general, The Reform Act of 1978 made it easier for both businesses and individuals to file bankruptcy to reorganize. In 1978 was a major piece of legislation. It started a bunch of legal controversies and many amendments to the judicial clarification uh, in the 1978 Act, and it was made part of an act that was passed in the 1980s. One pivotal event was a 1982 Supreme Court ruling that bankruptcy courts enlarged jurisdiction, which was established by the 1978, was unconstitutional. In layman's terms, what the court found in 1982 was that bankruptcy judges had been given power by Congress and their duties overlapped with those of the judicial branch. And so there was a problem there. So what do I mean? Congress is an Article I entity. Congress created bankruptcy. And so bankruptcy judges are entities of Article I. Article Three of our Constitution deals with the judiciary. Article Three judges have a separate and distinct power that comes directly from the Constitution. They're afforded lifetime tenure as long as they're uh, acting in good behavior. Article I judges are creations of Congress. And because bankruptcy judges were being treated like Article Three judges, there was a conflict with the Constitution. So that all got sorted out, 
And today, the way bankruptcy judges are treated, they're appended to Article Three district judges, and that and their power flows through the Article Three district judges. But bankruptcy law is still created by Congress, Article One, and Article Three. Um, uh, Article Three is where the rules come from, and Article. Um, uh, the two, the executive branch also is involved because the Department of Justice, via the, um, the U.S. trustee, supervises corporate bankruptcy. So there you go. It's all intertwined. So when we come back next time, we'll continue our discussion on how important bankruptcy is in our society. So in closing, uh, as I always say, let's try to stay on the right side of the law. Take care. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Selwyn's Law. Remember, the law office of Selwyn Whitehead is a designated debt relief agency under the federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking relief under the bankruptcy code. When it comes to your finances and your rights, seek no other than the law office of Selwyn Whitehead. Selwyn is your go-to finance attorney, specializing in estate planning, wealth management, bankruptcy, tax, and real estate law. In other words, Selwyn knows her way around the dollar, and your rights are protected by our laws. Protect your money. Know your rights. Partner with Selwyn Whitehead. For immediate assistance, or if you have questions, call 510-633-1276, 510-633-1276, or go to selwynwhitehead.com. The preceding paid program is sponsored by the law office of Selwyn Whitehead, who is solely responsible for its content. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.